Welcome everybody to another episode of Logical and Right. That is right with a W as in Wright County. This is episode number nine. We have Chris Ann. Is it one name or is it Chris Ann or is it Chris Ann? It's Chris Ann. Um, it's just an interesting story, but it is Chris Ann. Okay, Chris Ann. Yeah, so it's a capital K and a capital A, but smooshed together into one name. That's what I have. She is a constitutional attorney or an attorney that is very well versed in the Constitution. I'm or a constitutional attorney by trade. Okay, there you go. And I figured what I would do is just ask her uh, however many questions we can get through in a half an hour. I'll see if I can't pull something out that she thinks is decently intelligent. And <laughs> if I can't, uh, I will just fall back on that I am a Neanderthal construction <laughs> worker. And if I do surprise her, then everyone should be impressed because I managed to do that. So my first one that I had, and I'm guessing you have gotten this before, but my, my thought behind it is I'm always frustrated when our side of the aisle, when somebody says something and they're basically just parroting what they've heard. And you go, ah, is that really true? And basically the answer is, well, it has to be because I've heard it before. <laughs> and so my first question is, the statement of taxes being unconstitutional. I'm sure you've heard this before. Mm -hmm. And we don't want to sound like a bunch of freeloading libs where we want everything for free. So I've always... Yeah, that's actually communism. Yep. Yeah. You know, we all drive on the roads. We love taking our kids to playgrounds and or a splash pad. So maybe you could, maybe you could just define that statement and tell, are they truly uncommon? Well, I think that it's a broad and generalized statement that actually loses truth in its overbroadness. okay? So uh, taxation is not generally unconstitutional. Uh, the problem, the, the reason people think taxation is unconstitutional is because we have unconstitutional tax. So the, mechanism by which the federal government taxes us is contrary to the formation of our constitutional republic. Uh, the federal government was never supposed to be allowed to return to people's pockets. The federal government was supposed to assess taxation via uh, what we call apportionment. So the taxes were supposed to be apportioned to the states based on their population. That was one of the reasons why the census was in the Constitution. So the census would determine the population. The population would determine the percentage of federal expenses that the state was owed. And the reason it was done this way was so that the states could be a check and balance on the growth of government. Right, because money is directly related to the growth of government, and the states who would be paying the federal expenses would have the purse strings. They'd have the authority to say, um, wait a minute, we didn't authorize you to do that, so we're not going to pay for that. So the states had the authority and the duty to defund federal activity that was not authorized by the Constitution. So that would eliminate probably 98% of the federal agencies because that authority the federal agencies are exercising is actually an authority that was reserved to the states. So by paying the federal government to do what the states are supposed to do, the states would be like, no, that's our power. You know, we're not paying you to do that. That belongs here in the state. Uh, the other 
I would say, more local application of unconstitutional taxation has to do with things like property taxes, things that have to do with welfare, the forced collection of money to engage in charity. Government is not supposed to be in the charity business. Charity is a private action. Charity is something that we do um, based on our conscience. Uh, historically, it's been a church-related activity. Churches did charity. The Bible commands Christians to be cheerful givers. You can't be a cheerful giver if somebody's pointing a gun at your head. And so government's not supposed to be engaging in charity because, number one, it's impossible for government to be charity. Charity is a voluntary thing. Mm -hmm. Government doesn't do anything voluntary. You give us money or you suffer the force of government. And as Thomas Jefferson said, to, con to compel someone to give money in the support of something they do not believe or they abhor is sinful and tyrannical. So taxation in the name of, of charity is an unconstitutional, immoral taxation. Somebody say, how do you be immoral if you're helping people out? Well, you're not helping people out. You're actually creating a dependency on government which increases the power of government and the servitude of the people. It's also not helping people by legalizing plunder, and that's what you're doing. It's taxation in the name of charity is stealing from people to give to someone else. That's that. And property taxes. Property taxes are also uh, an anti-liberty, therefore unconstitutional taxation because when you have property taxes, you don't have property ownership. What you're literally doing is renting land from the government. And if you don't pay your property taxes, the government seizes your property. Now what they'll tell you is, and, and, the, and the rule of thumb is three years, right? You don't pay your property taxes for three years, the government will seize your private property, and they'll tell you that they're doing so to uh, collect unpaid taxes. The problem is that three years of unpaid taxes never comes anywhere near the monetary value worth of your land. <laughs> so they're not seizing your property to pay off your taxes because mm -hmm. your property is worth a lot more than that. Mm -hmm. What they're doing is evicting you because you have failed to pay your government rent. And that's what property taxes have become. So taxation per se is not unconstitutional the means by which you collect it, and the manner in which you spend it is unconstitutional. It makes it unconstitutional. Got it. That was phenomenal. <laughs> <laughs> that is uh, obviously the most um, involved answer to that question I have ever come across, but that doesn't surprise me. Uh, but you make a really good point, actually, because when we speak in such broad overgeneralizations, you actually lose credibility. Mm -hmm. And then you got people like, well, you're just, you're anti-government. You're just a, you're just one of those anarchists. You're just, you don't want to pay you know, for your land. If you don't want to pay taxes, then don't drive on the roads, right? I mean, it, I think that it really puts us in a bad position, it delegitimizes legitimate arguments. And so we have to be more careful about how we speak and we have to be more deliberate mm -hmm. about what we speak. But that means, we have to be better educated about what we're going to speak on. And back to your point, you can't be better educated about what you're speaking on if all you're doing is parroting what somebody told you. Mm -hmm. um, 
Wonderful. Okay, so this one, there's a question in there somewhere, but you being far smarter than me, I'm guessing you can pull it out. I don't know if you heard about that Marine veteran who was uh, or coming to the help of his friend in Baltimore. And Okay. Keep going. Let me see if it rings a bell. Uh, just recently, a Marine came to uh, a friend's aid in Baltimore because he was being attacked. Um, he had a uh, he had a gun on him, a legally permitted gun, mm-hmm. uh, from it, obviously it was someplace mm-hmm. else, and he is now um, under charges of illegally carrying. And what I was thinking is how insane it is that we send our military, of which you were correct, right. Army Intelligence. Uh, the oxymoron. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we send our military into foreign lands that often uh, have, I mean, completely restrictive gun laws with their guns. Yet a Marine here is under charges for illegally carrying because the piece of paper he had on him said, well, it's good over there, but it's not good directly across. And I can... I guess maybe it was, it's more of a, uh, how are we, how is being in the military not allowed you or afforded you the ability to carry your legal weapon everywhere well, in the I country? Think the bigger question is, is how do you live in a place that professes that the people are free and yet people don't have the liberty to defend their own life, their own liberty, their own property? I mean, that's really the question. How can he be where he is and be arrested for doing what we should be doing? Mm -hmm. We should be loving our neighbor as ourselves. We should be acting in defense of our neighbor. We should be doing these things. So how is it that the government has made it illegal what is actually moral and right to do? That that would be the question, right? Mm -hmm. So the answer to that question I can give you... um, Samuel Adams said this. He said, No people will tamely surrender their liberties nor be easily subdued when knowledge is diffused and virtue is preserved. He said, On the contrary, when the people become universally ignorant and debauched in their manners, they will sink underneath their own weight without the aid of war invaders. So the loss of liberty in America is due to the ignorance of the people about their liberty. So the way we speak and the words that we use have power. And when we speak, we speak power. We speak power to other people. We speak power to our own mind, right? How we speak over time will dictate how we think. And we have for over a century now, we have referred to our rights as constitutional rights. Mm-hmm or people will call them Second Amendment rights. Mm-hmm. Well, that's how the degradation of our rights begin, when people believe that our right to keep and bear arms comes from the Second Amendment, or it comes from the Constitution, because that's what constitutional means. We're gonna talk about that tonight. Constitutional means that it is derived from the Constitution. Your right to keep and bear arms is not a constitutional right. It's not derived from the Constitution. You do not have a Second Amendment right to keep and bear arms. Your right to keep and bear arms is not derived from the Second Amendment. 
As a matter of fact, your right to keep and bear arms precedes both the Second Amendment and the Constitution. Because your right to keep and bear arms is a natural right mm -hmm. derived from the nature of our creation. It's why the Declaration of Independence reads, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator mm -hmm. with certain and alienable rights. Among these, life. Your life is an inalienable right. Meaning, it doesn't come from law, it doesn't come from documents, it doesn't come from people. It comes from the nature of your creation. The understanding you are created by a higher power, whatever that higher power may be, you are created by a higher power, and that higher power has, has endowed you with these rights that cannot be separated from you because they're a part of you, like your DNA. You know, your creator gave that to you. Mm -hmm. And so that's who you are. Samuel Adams also said this, that among the natural rights of the colonists are life, liberty, property, and the right to protect and defend them in the best manner they can. He says these are derived from the first law of nature, the duty of self-preservation. So we have to have an inherent, by the nature of our creation, inalienable, not given to us by laws or men or documents, right to preserve life, liberty, and property. Because if we do not have an individual inalienable right to do so, then we are not free. We are actually the very definition of slave. Because what happens is when you have law, like in this situation, that makes it illegal for you to defend your life or the life of someone else for that matter, mm -hmm. uh, then you are enslaved to whomever the government assigns to protect you. The reason we know that is because the very definition of slavery is when one person has the legal authority to assign value to the life of another person, right? I sell you for 20 bucks. I'm telling you that's the value of your life. That's slavery, mm -hmm. right? But when government limits us by law in preserving our own life and makes us dependent upon the government's assignee, to defend our life. We actually become enslaved to that person because that person comes on the scene. You're in a very dangerous situation. You're in a grave situation, right? Mm -hmm. Life is in danger. The law says you can't defend yourself. So you have to call someone from the government to defend you. <laughs> well, that person from the government comes to defend you and decides, yep, that's a really dangerous situation. That's a very grave situation. It is so dangerous it would put me in danger. So here's what I think. It's too much of a danger for me as the government agent to protect you. So I'm not gonna protect you. And in that moment, what that agent has said is his life is more valuable than yours. When he says his life is more valuable than yours, he's putting a value, he's assigning a value to your life and you are now owned by that person. So we have to understand that the right to keep and bear arms is a natural right that is directly linked to the duty of self-preservation, which is the first law of nature. Fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm guessing I'm not going to be able to get to them all, but uh, you'll notice um, 
my last question, uh, I cheated because I have a good friend who's a lawyer. Oh, oh. <laughs> those are usually the worst questions. <laughs> uh, but this, uh, before that, um, I have thought for quite a while, ever since the, ever since the um, sanctuary city was brought to light basically by, I mean, well, it must have been 2015 when Trump kind of mm-hmm. <laughs> started saying this is a real thing mm-hmm. when I believe before that it was kind of a, well, that doesn't really happen, but it indeed does happen. Mm-hmm. And so I have always thought, how are there not massive, and maybe this is not the correct term, massive class action lawsuits when a city has been protecting an illegal immigrant who commits a crime against somebody and then obviously the family is now affected. Uh, I mean, it seems, I couldn't, I certainly could not harbor a fugitive in my house without being in, you know, (laughs) mega big trouble to use a totally uh, technical term. Um, How are there not huge, massive lawsuits I believe it has to do, once again, with that thing that Samuel Adams said, that people simply don't know what they don't know. Mm-hmm. And it's not something, we're not trained to think outside the box. We're not trained to think on our own anymore, really. I mean, look at the name of your show. I imagine your show is named the way it is because you recognize there's a dearth of logical thinking <laughs> in, in the country today. And that's simply because that's how we've been trained. The American education system, and then saying this usually offends school teachers and people who are in the public education system, but you know, the reality is the history of the American education system was designed to create illiterate, non-thinking people by the words of the people who designed the American education system. So you have Wilhelm Funt, you have G. Stanley Hall, you have uh, Thorndike and Dewey. All of them said that illiteracy was a goal of the American education system and docile citizens who yield to their ever-molding hand, that's a direct quote, was the goal of the American education system. So when our parents who are now becoming aware of the pathetic education that their children are getting in the schools are running around saying the American education system is broken, is broken, is broken, the reality is the American education system is not broken. It's doing exactly what it was designed to do. We were just taught to believe that it was doing something different, right? And so lawsuits are not coming because number one, people don't know that that should be an option, right? You talked about, I couldn't harbor a fugitive. Mm -hmm. Well, most Americans don't know that it's actually a federal crime, punishable by 10 years in prison and a $5,000 fine for each illegal alien that a person hides, harbors, hires, houses or even encourages to do any of those things it's 8 usc 1324 so it is a violation of federal law to transport an illegal alien it's a violation of federal law to hire an illegal alien it's a a violation of law to give them a place to live it's a violation of federal law to encourage them to stay or come into the united states punishable by uh, uh, 10 years in prison, $5,000 fine fine for each alien, right? So you have 
the violation of federal law, which is the equivalent of harboring, harboring a fugitive. Mm-hmm. And the governments that allow this ought to be civilly liable for the damages. So there is no reason legally why, I don't say class action lawsuits, because... That was a guess. Yeah, <laughs> well, I, I haven't quite figured it out, but there's this, this thing in modern American culture, everybody wants to file a class action suit, and, and it's because the American people don't really understand the judicial system as a whole, and you know they think, well, if we're all suffering from the same way, that must be a class action mm-hmm. suit. So, uh, you know, if there's one thing that I could give the audience is uh, clash action suits are not the catch-all. Mm-hmm. As a matter of fact, they're rare. They're not the rule. So, but individual lawsuits, okay, individual civil lawsuits are what should be happening. You should be suing the governor, the city council, the county commission, the sheriff for allowing these things to happen. Have any been filed that you know of? Not that I know of. That seems just insane. Well, you know, <laughs> um, one of my great friends told me something very profound. The people don't know what they don't know. Yeah. And we've been taught. I mean, I'm actually having arguments with people, right? I'm, I'm a teacher, so I don't argue. But people are arguing with me mm-hmm. about uh, whether the governors of the states can defend their states from invasion. <laughs> I mean, that should be like a no-brainer. I really mm-hmm. have a hard time uh, breaking an argument that should be like kindergarten simple down to simpler terms so that these people get it. But the idea that we've been teaching since 1833 is that the federal government is the supreme governor government of the universe. And we made the federal government in charge of protecting our borders. If they're not doing it, then there's nothing we can do about it. You know, Mm -hmm. it's just a lazy cop-out, and it's a political cop-out. And in reality, every governor of every state has an obligation to protect their borders. And because illegal alien status in their state is a violation of 8 U.S.C. 1324, they also have an obligation to deport them. Mm-hmm. Well, there's a lot of uh, words that are um, that we thought meant one thing for a long time that no longer mean that. Um, in our final eight-ish minutes, I will now I will now cheat. Okay, cheat. I thought you cheated on the last one. <laughs> no, that was me. Still, mm-hmm. this one's the cheater. Okay. Uh, and I have to give it to uh, a good friend, longtime friend, Colin Doherty, who is okay. a. Uh, who is a lawyer, a private equity lawyer, I believe. Uh, but To which, in all transparency, I have no knowledge of that area of law. He's a smart guy, so I'm guessing. He knew, I, I told him who you were, and so he said, this is what you need to ask. Commerce Clause Jurisprudence. <laughs> Explain that albatross, and, um, and then possibly oh you know what this one i think maybe is uh is somewhat related if we can fit it in there how in all honesty do you think we are how close do you think we are to an actual convention of states happening so common uh commerce clause jurisprudence and then i you know i i do wish those two questions were were actually related and they're not unfortunately 
um, everyone that I've met who's a proponent for Convention of the States has no intention of making that a matter for Convention of the States. Um, so that's, that's, a, that's an issue. Um, but that's a whole separate question. Okay. And we can, we can address that later. The Commerce Clause, what's interesting is James Madison himself uh, dealt with this problem. Um, in 1792, the Congress, the U.S. Congress, was already trying to bootstrap more power in the federal government than they were authorized to. And Jefferson called it constructive powers. So taking clauses and constructing power from the clauses that were never really intended to be a power in the first place. And that's what happened with the Commerce Clause. Um, I have online constitution and American history training on a website called libertyfirstsociety.com. Mm -hmm. And, you know, to really do this question justice, you really have to, I mean, you have Maybe to you go back to some very deep basics to, to build a foundation so people can build upon. But I can tell you a lot of it has to do with the errant understanding of the role of the courts, right? So the Commerce Clause expansion of authority has actually happened through the judicial system. And can you explain Commerce Clause jurisprudence very quickly for, is basically, or and I suppose you kind of did, but in a very well, elementary. In, in a nutshell, the, the courts have decided that if it involves money, then it's a power the government's supposed to regulate, okay? And what's interesting is during the cod fishery debate in 1792, James Madison destroys that argument. I mean, annihilates it. So how the modern courts could ever readopt that in light of the fact that Madison's argument is out there and that is such a, a nuclear bomb to that argument uh, proves that the judiciary is not really interested in the proper application of the Constitution or the truth of the Constitution. Uh, the judiciary, you know, I know as a lawyer, it's probably self-defeating, you know, but the judiciary itself is more concerned about expanding government power, so their power is expanded. Mm -hmm. See, the more you expand federal authority, the more you expand the, the jurisdiction of the federal courts. The more the jurisdiction of the federal courts are expanded, the more money the federal courts get more importance, the more power they have. So the Commerce Clause was never meant to be such an enormously generically wielding power of the federal government. The Commerce Clause was there to encourage, to, to instruct the federal government that they are to encourage commerce between the states, not regulate it. So, uh, you know, I mean, it, it's, it's really difficult because I feel like if I don't say enough, then I'm actually creating more of a problem mm -hmm. than, than solving it. Because it really, it's not a complex thing, right? Mm -hmm. But it is an involved thing because we've been studying the wrong things for so very long, right? So this, this whole idea that um, you know, if, you, if you grow wheat, uh, well, people buy wheat. And since people buy wheat, even if you don't sell wheat, uh, because you're growing it and not buying it, you're impacting 
commerce, mm-hmm. which means the fact that you're providing for yourself and not taking from the market, your impact of the commerce, the, the impact of what you do on your own land without touching anybody else is actually government regulated authority. It's, it's really hard to superficially wrap your brain around because they had to do so many acrobats, to, mm-hmm. ac- acrobatic movements to actually make it happen. It defies all logic and is built on probably 37 fallacies of logic. But it is, the, it is one of the primary examples of judicial activism, right? Mm-hmm. Actually, the contortions necessary to create a power because you're controlled by special interest that makes money off what you do. Mm-hmm. And I don't really, I, I, I do apologize to your lawyer friend, because I, I really <laughs> think that that was a really crappy answer. Um, it's just that, it's not something that you can easily delve into in like mm-hmm. five minutes. I mean, I have a two-hour course on yep. the federal judiciary, yep. and I have a course uh, on the clauses. I have a 30-minute course just on the Commerce Clause, the General Welfare Clause, and the Necessary and Proper Clauses. So all of that's at libertyforsociety.com. And in that, in, in that platform, I'm able to really mm-hmm. lay it out in a linear progression so people can see what the problem is. The convention of states. Separate, yeah, separating yeah. those two. In your honest opinion, are we close? Will it? No, no I don't not think at so. all. Um, I think part of the problem is that there's a misunderstanding of what that actually means. Anyway, um, there's there's different camps on defining convention of states in different ways. Uh, I've heard people say that a convention of the states are states that can meet to amend the Constitution without congressional permission. That's not true. The Constitution in Article 5 requires Congress to be a part of amending the Constitution. If you're professing that the states can do it without Congress, then then what you're actually doing is violating the Constitution. You're not amending it. You're violating it. It's a revolutionary act, right? Mm-hmm. But And then the false premise that amending the Constitution will fix the problems of out-of-control government, that's not really going to happen that way either. Number one... Because amending the Constitution is a very, very long process, okay? Uh, I have spoken to the lawyers who uh, laid the groundwork for the Convention of State Movements. And we've sat down and talked about this, and and we all agree that that, uh, if a convention was called today, it would be 10 years before you would see an amendment. You could possibly see an amendment. And a lot of that is questionable because it could actually be longer than that because um, the, con- the, concept, the, the process is so complicated and you're going to have Congress interfering along the way. Plus there are people who already have lawsuits written waiting for Congress to call the convention so they can file the lawsuits and then delay the whole process <laughs> along the itself. And then you realize once the convention forms, then they have to agree on the issues, and then once they agree on the issues, they have to debate the issues, they have to draft the issues, they have to decide on the issues, then they have to bring the issues back to the states. The states then have to be able to debate them, offer amendments, then they have to come to final conclusions, they have to be brought back to the states to be voted because an amendment has to be ratified by three quarters of the states, so you're going to have to have in-state elections and the lawsuits and all this stuff. So 10 years. 
we don't have 10 years to fix what's wrong with our government. Now, um, there are some things that we would benefit amending the Constitution. I think clarifying, as Madison did, what is the purpose of these clauses? That would be really great. Repealing the 16th and 17th Amendments would be very valuable amendments to the Constitution. That would be fantastic. We've done it before. I mean, we, we, we repealed the uh, prohibition mm-hmm. in the Constitution, so we can repeal amendments. So we repeal the 16th, the 17th Amendment. We add amendments that define and limit the federal government through the proper application of the Commerce Clause, the Necessary Proper Clause, the General Welfare Clauses. Um, but you also understand that opening a convention doesn't limit the convention. Uh, it is impossible to limit the convention to a pre-described terms of topics. The convention has to meet and decide on those topics. You can't go into it with a limited amount of topics. <laughs> so the moment you call a convention, then everything in the Constitution is on the chopping block. That's um, scary. Yeah, so <laughs> Justice Paul Stevens wrote a book Former Supreme Court Justice Paul Stevens, he's a liberal hack, <laughs> uh, wrote a book about amending the Constitution. He's got a whole book on it, six things that he would amend as a Supreme Court Justice on the Constitution. One of them had to do with the Second Amendment. And he said that of course it did. <laughs> given the opportunity, he would amend the Second Amendment to read, the right of the people to keep and bear arms while in uniform shall not be infringed. So while you work for the government, and only while you work for the government do you have a right to keep and bear arms, right? So the question becomes, and here's the interesting thing. I wrote a book called Sovereign Duty. I have a whole chapter on this in the book. And the interesting thing is that when they were discussing uh, the ratification of the Constitution, specifically the means by which the Constitution would be amended, James Madison said his chief concern was not, in general, the con- con- a future convention itself, but who would be the delegates for the convention? Who would choose them? Um, what would they be chosen to do? What would guide them? Madison literally said the only reason we had a successful convention at this point, because we just came from a bloody revolution that kept all the delegates, in the most part, focused on liberty. He said, without that kind of motivation in the future, he said, I fear the delegates would just be political party loyalists and special interests hirelings who will go up there to advance the power of their political party and to get money kickbacks for their special interests. And so we have to be really concerned about who will be the delegates. Because you can imagine, who would argue that Justice Paul Stevens would not be qualified to amend the Constitution. He was an, a Supreme Court justice, after all. Right? Mm-hmm. You, you, would be, you would be a lunatic. If, you would be labeled as a lunatic if you said that Paul Stevens was not, John Paul Stevens was not qualified to be in an amendment convention. When in reality, he's not qualified. He doesn't understand the Constitution. And his goals would not be liberty-focused. His goals would be activism, mm-hmm. uh, activism uh, motivated. And so um, I think until we actually solve uh, 
the problem answer the question of who will be the delegates and what will be their motivation. Yeah. Um, we must understand that a convention itself could have um, unforeseen negative consequences. Mm -hmm. And even in the best of scenarios, 10 years before you actually have some kind of a solution. Yeah, that's uh, potentially 12 years, three different presidents. <laughs> so, absolutely. Uh, well, you need to get ready for mm -hmm. your event and well, your... Well, this has been fun. You had great questions. Hey, thanks. Are you regretting one you didn't ask? I can give you one more. Um, let's see. I think I... No, I kind of... We kind of... can't see, but you have like this whole list of things mm -hmm. that we covered. No, I think okay. I got to them all. Um, Oh, well, if there's time, explain, <laughs> there's not, uh, he, my friend said, uh, explain different judicial philosophies. Pop can of worms. I don't think we have time for that. <laughs> nope. <laughs> so, uh, thank you. I think the most destructive judicial philosophy is one that I call judicial supremacy. And that's the idea that the Supreme Court is the ultimate arbiter of the meaning and application of the Constitution. Which and, is not a delegated power. Yeah. And, and is not what Marbury versus Madison actually said. So those of you who know what I'm talking about, <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. Um, I always challenge people, they're like, what about Marbury versus Madison? I said, have you actually read Marbury versus Madison? And so my question to you is, if your answer to me is Marbury versus Madison, have you actually read Marbury versus Madison? Because modern law books teach an errant uh, understanding of Marbury versus Madison. Oh, I Marshall didn't say what people say he said. Um, a yes or no, and I have a, I, I have a feeling I know what it'll be. Uh, raid on Mar-a-Lago. <laughs> oh, well, I think the very document they released proves that it was completely unconstitutional. And I said that it was before they even released the document. First, I doubted that they were actually going to release it, right? Because you have to understand, since the Patriot Act was passed in 2001, mm -hmm. the federal government has believed it's not subject to the Fourth Amendment regarding searches. They can do a search whatever they want. They don't have to have probable cause. They don't have to have any kind of proof whatsoever. And so I was actually interviewed um, by a news station, and they asked me, what do you think? Are they going to let, is the judge going to release this document? And I said, well, if he does, it will be heavily redacted. And if it's heavily redacted, the only thing that's going to be redacted is the part that has to do with probable cause. And the entire probable cause section was redacted because they didn't have any. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, but the sad thing is that this is not new. I mean, I told you they changed, they changed the standard for, at least legally changed the standard for uh, warrants for the federal government in 2001. These kind of raids have been happening on American citizens for 21 years. Well, yeah, just in the past is, couple weeks. <laughs> yeah, so people, people, it's now coming to light because it happened to Trump and he's such a public figure. But the reality is the American citizens have been suffering under these kinds of unconstitutional, lawless raids for 21 years, in the very least. Mm -hmm. If you actually study out the history of the FBI since the 1930s, you can see they've always operated like this. Mm -hmm. They've never been concerned about the Constitution. Yeah. Yep. Okay. I've taken up. Good? Yes. <laughs> Amazing. Perfect. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for being with us to our surely millions upon oh, millions of listeners. Millions. <laughs> um, that is all. Uh, keep it logical.
keep it right, Wright County. Rock and roll.